Welcome, welcome everyone. Special thank you to DJ Sofa for getting us um, up and at them with a little bit of a dance music. Thanks DJ Sofa, always a wonderful playlist you start us out with. Um, welcome to Tuesday Talks. My name is Ladarian Gillette. I'm gonna be co-hosting this week with my colleague Ryan Shepard who will join um, shorter or lately or later in the conversation. So we're gonna hop right in um, for this week. So the Care Atlanta Global Innovation Hub convenes people and organizations dedicated to defeating poverty by achieving social justice and equity everywhere. The Innovation Hub creates the space programs and support systems to connect leaders with global practitioners in hopes of solving the world's most pressing problems. Tuesday Talks was created to build bridges by exploring compelling topics. We hope each week participants leave with a deeper understanding of the topics and feel more clear about how they can contribute to solutions in their personal journey. At the Innovation Hub, we believe in the leadership of women and especially look to highlight expertise from Black, Indigenous, and communities of color. We're committed to centering and uplifting all justice-centered voices in our conversations and programming. So before we get started today, I wanna to give you all a little bit of context about the conversation. So the world is in a very different place than where it was six years ago, when the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN committed to the goal of ending hunger, food insecurity, and all forms of malnutrition by 2030. Conflict, climate change, and economic slowdowns are the major drivers slowing down progress, particularly where inequality is high. The COVID-19 pandemic made the pathway towards SDG2 even steeper. Food insecurity is defined as a lack of consistent access to enough food for every person in a household to live an active, healthy lifestyle. This can be a temporary situation for a household or can last a long time. Food insecurity is one way we can measure how many people cannot afford food. In 2020, between 720 and 811 million people faced hunger. So in today's conversation, we will give space to amazing and pioneering women who are leading the charge to address hunger and food shortages for all communities. So first, let me introduce you to the speakers. We have a great lineup today. Um, first, let me introduce you to Dana Kraft. She is the executive director of the Georgia Food Bank Association, which is comprised of seven regional Feeding America food banks, which collectively distribute more than 200 million pounds of food annually through more than 2,000 partner congregations and nonprofit agencies with food assistance programs throughout the state. The association leads the statewide effort to end hunger in Georgia. Dana, thank you for joining today. Glad to be with you. Next, we have Deep Mala Mala. Mala serves as CARE's Vice President, Humanitarian Affairs. Deep Mala has worked for over two decades designing and implementing humanitarian and development programs in some of the most complex and fragile environments, ranging from the Middle East to Africa to Asia. Deep Mala, welcome. And last, we have Wilhelmina Wilson, also known as Mina. She is a descendant of the African diaspora. Her ancestors were important to Somerset Plantation in Cresswell, North Carolina on July 10, 1786, as enslaved people. Using education as a means to dismantle oppression, her lineage has ascended through five generations. Wilhelmina lives in North California and is the proud mother of two children. Hi, Mina, welcome Hi. to the conversation. Thank you, happy to be here. Perfect. So before we get into the nitty gritty of the conversation, we always like to start out with a really fun question for all of the speakers. Um, we would love for you all to share with us what communities you call home and what communities you're advocating for through your work. So maybe let's start with Mina first and then we'll hear from Dana and then Deep Mala. Um, I have the um, benefit of working in the community that I grew up in. So my home community is El Cerrito, California. 
Um, it's on the in the East Bay area, just um, across the bay from San Francisco. And I'm working in a city right next door to it where my parents actually um, grounded our family in the early 50s, Berkeley, California. That's where Healthy Black Families is located. Great, thank you for that. Dana, what about you? What communities do you call and who you're advocating for? I live in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, I live in the congressional district that um, John Lewis, legendary John Lewis was a part of. So my neighborhood is full of um, civil rights workers and community organizers. And so I uh, am very excited about being in such a progressive city uh, that Atlanta is, it is changing, it is growing, um, it is diverse. And um, I love being in this community and being a part of it. I'm advocating, uh, I tend, uh, that, that was a hard question because I'm a relentless optimist. And so I advocate for a lot of things, but I, I think right now, um, my biggest concern is uh, families with children. Perfect, thank you for that, Dana. And Deep Mala, what about you? What communities do you call home and who are you advocating for through your work? Thank you, Ladder, and hello, everybody. My home is India in a city called Jaipur. I grew up and I started working here. And then um, it's a very difficult question because I've lived in various different parts of the world. So what I'm advocating for or who I'm advocating for is every person who has been displaced from their homes or forced to flee for reasons which were beyond their control. Thanks for that, Deepmala. And let's actually go ahead and start there. So Deepmala, you are the VP of Humanitarian Affairs for CARE. Um, so you have a long uh, breadth of work around the world, uh, especially in areas of food insecurity. So I'd love for you maybe to share um, a little bit more about how food insecurity is defined and how it's measured, especially from a global scale. Sure, thank you very much. And as, uh, I mean, uh, sorry to start with a grim note, but when we started this year, in 2020, we knew 2021 is going to be a very difficult year in terms of food security and hunger. As we are speaking, whichever part of the world you are, 957 million people, that's slightly short of just a billion, are going to sleep hungry tonight. So when we deal with food insecurity, you, you may have come across the humanitarian or development people. Sometimes we say famine, sometimes we say near famine-like conditions, sometimes we say food insecurity, sometimes we say severely food insecure. So what does all this mean? In, this, in the most simple way, let's say any terminology indicates that the person's life health or livelihood is in risk because of food shortage. This is the underlying thing. Now, the severity of it takes it to different levels. If it's as an extremely severe level, then we would say it's a famine condition. To sort of meet now, what is a famine condition? There are several criteria. I will spare you all the detail, but then it means the measurement of the nutritional level of the people. So if we call it famine, then at least 30% of the people, kids have to be under this degree of nutrition. Um, a certain number of people have to be dying because of starvation. So it gets that technical, but in short, a person's health, livelihood, safety is in risk because there is not enough food. Lastly, before I hand it over back to you, Ladera, I would like to highlight often, 
you see the newspaper headline, famine has hit Somalia or famine has hit South Sudan, people start dying before the declaration. And oftentimes the declaration of famine is a very political term. Sometimes the host governments do not agree. Sometimes the host governments agree. Why is it political? We'll come to it later. Hunger is not about food production. The 957 million who are sleeping hungry tonight, that is definitely not because there is not enough food. That is least of the reasons. We'll come to that in my, in my subsequent answers, but the declaration of the term famine is deeply political. However, action does not need to wait for people to fall into famine. Many years ago, when the famine was declared in Somalia, half of the people had already died before the declaration. And lastly, between starvation and death, there is usually disease. So action needs to happen much sooner before the technical declarations happen. Letarian. Thank you for that, Deep Malin. Thank you for kind of starting us out too with some stats, although um, they can feel a little bit burdensome, right? I think it's important for us to have these conversations, especially so close to um, Thanksgiving, which is a huge holiday here in the US. But Deep Malin, you said something um, that triggered the next question really around famine and things being more political than we think, right? So I would love to pull Dana back in here. Dana, I know your organization um, works on several or supporting several different policies. So would love for you to maybe speak to the current federal policies that are having an impact on food access and what policies your organization is advocating for to hopefully increase communities access to quality food. Sure. So, you know, the federal safety net programs that help low income families and families experiencing emergency sort of shortage of, of food um, worked really well for adults um, during COVID, did not work as well for children because the uh, adults have access to a program called SNAP, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which is a cash benefit that they can use in a grocery store. Um, a lot of um, streamlining was done to that program to make it easy for people to sign up. But the, the food programs that kids depend on, like free lunch at school and after school dinners, those programs didn't operate normally. And many are still not operating normally or at full capacity. And so while, while we got waivers from USDA to do grab and go and put, put lunches on school buses and have them run the school route and things like that, um, we, there were still a lot of kids who, who missed those meals and are missing those meals. So we are advocating um, right now in current legislation for, um, for a, a, a expansion of the free lunch program so that more schools can serve universal free meals to everyone without having the parents have to come and sign up for it. Um, and also to provide that lunch benefit in, the ter in, in terms of a, a cash benefit they can spend at the grocery store during the summertime when school is out. Um, there is also uh, a need for additional USDA commodities that the food banks distribute. Um, there, we are still seeing a 25 to 35% increase in demand above pre-pandemic levels. And um, USDA commodities, uh, an emergency commodities program that USDA operates is a critical piece of that uh, and provides nutritious food that the food banks can distribute. And we are advocating an end of year spending for some an additional allocation of those, those commodities for our network. 
So Dana, love that you kind of introduced what you all are doing with specifically kind of vulnerable populations. I think children do fall within that spectrum, right? And I think we all saw um, the, the impact, the negative impact of COVID on the education system as a whole, right? And food being a piece of that too. Um, Mina, I would love to bring you in here. So you work specifically with communities of color. So would love for you to share maybe some historical context with us around access to healthy food or access to food systems in general, particularly for people who identify within the African diaspora. Thank you, Ladarian. Um, I like to look at the kind of microcosmic so I can understand it in my um, simplicity as I look at the larger spectrum. Um, as I look at my own personal history, uh, we are descendants of a plantation in North Carolina. I'm, an, I'm the descendant of two multi-generational lineages that spawned from that plantation. And in that construct, uh, I really didn't understand it until I returned there in 2019. And it began to inform me about these systems around us that continue to propagate the same kind of social dynamics uh, because we haven't addressed them. Um, in that construct, of course, um, my people were property. Um, the colonizers who arrived here decided that their lives were worth sacrificing for their wealth. And that, ha that went on until emancipation and thereafter. Um, I perceive that we are still stuck in our system levels in some of those same constructs. Um, this is really well documented in the research that Nicole Hannah-Jones did with the New York Times and the 1619 Project that documented the various systems in our society and how they continue to propagate the same types of inequity. So my question that I walk through life with is, how do we begin to address the systems, um, not the circumstances that support these larger um, framing of inequity? Uh, personally, um, in my own community, um, out of a master's degree I got at St. Mary's College of California, we were seeking to address this with um, African-American children in the, rich, in the Bay Area community. And we had a cultural school where we were um, teaching farming. Um, we went to farms every week. Um, we also taught them the legacy of slavery from a value-based perspective as food being life and their ancestors having contributed greatly to um, life in the nation and growing the nation. As we did, we registered with the local school district to send us food. Um, through the summer program. And I was convicted because the food we received didn't meet the standards for a healthy living program that we were delivering. We got expired food, we got processed substances. So we had to recalibrate just to hold to our own ethic um, and collaborate with the farms around us to get that healthy food. So oftentimes, you know, it's not, getting food in, it's getting food of a quality that's going to contribute to life that will help people have the energy to pursue their goals and um, you know, reach their potential in the world. I'll turn it back to you, Darian. Thanks, Mina, and, and thank you for that historical context as well. I know um, 
I've seen before too. I've I've donated food to food banks and also um, have you know volunteered at food banks before, and it's very interesting to see the types of food that people bring by. Um, so just know I have a question for you at the end of this when we get to the Q and A session about how to change people's perceptions around what food should be given away from your cabinets um, and and what food is acceptable, right, for food banks to even receive. So just know that question is is going to come back to you. Um, Deep Mala, I want to pull you back in here. So uh, you. You are working kind of from this this global scale and you're dealing with not only COVID-19 but also also natural disasters and civil unrest can you maybe share with us how care staff and partners are reaching the most vulnerable people um, and what challenges are you facing and and maybe even share with us some innovative ways um, of getting around some of those challenges thank you Ladarian and uh, with this um, we can pivot towards what can be done because I'm sorry I started on such a negative note, but my previous speaker, Mina, used a very, very important word, which is inequity. And when people are hungry, it's not because there isn't food. When people are treated badly, it's not because people don't understand what equality is. It's the concept of power and inequity, which is translating into several of the impacts. Now, power may be an abstract thing to understand or measure. However, the impact of it is hugely tangible. Care field teams see it on the ground in reality almost every single day. Um, I spent a lot of my early years into development programming and I do want to share one incident which changed a lot for me. In my early years, I worked a lot around issues related to gender, sexuality, equality, inequity, the various definitions, beautiful diagrams, very, very nuanced work. And I was learning and I was contributing and I thought, wow, I'm making change and I just wanted to be a part of all this. Everything was beautiful within the hard work. Then I went to South Sudan. I was heading one of the larger, one of the larger international NGOs. And I have a visual really fixated in my mind we had a, a, we as in in the town where I lived, there was some fighting which was pretty common, looting, shooting, all that was going on. Um, after three, four days, when the fighting calmed down, shooting stopped, we decided to go out to do an assessment. I was in the first of the teams as a country director to do the assessment. There was this small kiosk and um, there was a dead body right next to the kiosk, like the drain near the drain, the kiosk was next to a drain. On the drain was a dead body. The kiosk was open. The guy was probably the owner. I saw two people. They were sort of, not literally, but sort of stepping over the dead body to grab the bag of rice and bag of sugar. I will never, I learned many lessons through that visual. Survival and the struggle and the difference between when we talk in big meetings and what it means to be that person on the ground who has that immense need. <coughs> Sorry, care teams on the ground, we care works in over 90 countries and we work in all sorts of contexts, deeply fragile humanitarian context, active conflict or natural disasters, or maybe even in countries like let's say Kenya, which we thought was which by all indicators was moving towards development, but is now facing major hunger issues. So care works in a combination of ways. In many of our country offices, 
we have been there for 60, 70 years. When you will meet our field teams like field workers, project officers, drivers, there is immense pride. Some of them will even tell you, my dad worked for care. There's immense pride, there's history, there's legacy. So we work directly through our teams. In a lot of our contexts, we work through local NGOs. In many places, we work through youth groups, women's groups, because what's best for the communities? No brainer, the community knows it. Who is the first responder? Do not believe any international NGO who comes and tells you they are the first responders. It's the local community, the women in the family, they are always the first responders. So we oftentimes work with them, take their inputs. How do we work? Lastly, sometimes it is in-kind assistance, like it's winter right now in Afghanistan, we are getting prepared to distribute people mattresses and blankets. In some cases, it would be food rations, dry food. Uh, in some places, it would be cash. Cash as a modality, give the power in the hand of the woman, let her choose what is best for her kids and for herself. So it can be in kind, it can be through cash, it can be through services. And we also collaborate a lot with the local government because it is sustainable, there's a longer term plan. So in many countries like Bangladesh, for example, we would work with the local health department, we would facilitate trainings and uh, capacity building, COVID response within the local health facility. So it's a range of options. We choose our way or modality to work depending on what is most suited in that context and what is best for the communities and the local government. And let me end by saying it's not always very rosy. There are many contexts where we, despite our best wishes and efforts, are not able to work because access to the people who are in need, which we call humanitarian access. Basically, humanitarians having the access to reach the people, that is restricted. Due to security, due to armed groups, due to government regulations, due to a landslide, due to natural reasons, due to geographical train. So in those cases, we somehow navigate, find a way as soon as we can to be able to access. Ladarian? Thanks for that, Deep Malin. I'm always super impressed whenever you speak and hear about CARES work. It's it's some amazing things that we do um, around the world. But want to slightly go in a, a different direction and bring Dana back in here. So I think we we've talked a little bit and, and heard from Deep Malin too around kind of COVID, um, civil unrest, kind of economic infrastructure that impacts food access. Um, Dana, you and I had a conversation um, before this conversation. You kind of highlighted some issues around the supply chain that I thought were were very fascinating. So can you speak to us around? you know, what disruption, what disruptions have you seen um, within the supply chain due to COVID-19 and what trends have been set within the food market um, that we will probably see for years to come? Right. And, you know, something Dick Mala had said is resonating very deeply with me because there are uh, the, the empty shelves in the grocery stores in the United States during COVID. There are a lot of really comfortable middle-class people who'd never seen that before. And I'm hoping that over time, it'll open their eyes to what famine really means in other parts of the world. Um, but what we saw, and I'll give you an example, in the state of Georgia, before COVID, 51 cents out of every dollar spent on food was spent in a restaurant. And so the restaurant, at, at, when everything shut down and the restaurants shut down and the kids weren't going to school, all of those producers and growers who had grown, who were growing kale and lettuce and um, and squash and stuff for the restaurant industry, right? Um, they didn't have a buyer for their markets, and we couldn't. There wasn't enough processing capacity to capture that fresh food, right? Because 
people were buying all this food in the grocery stores and all the processors that make soup and crackers and all of that food were running all of their lines, you know, as at full bore to try to meet the demand for all of the household groceries. And at the same time, USDA was trying to buy household groceries uh, through uh, to provide to the food bank network to distribute for emergency relief. And the food banks were raising money from local donors to buy food. So there was this huge demand for household groceries um, at a time when there were suppliers who were only geared to, to provide food to restaurants. I'll give you an example, packaging, 10 pounds of, you know, 10, 10 chicken breasts in a package. You wouldn't give that to a household, right? They don't have room in their freezer to buy 10 chicken breasts at a time, but that's what the packaging was. And so we were working very hard to try to see if we could repackage some of that food. But um, the what we are seeing now is the decisions that the producers made to just focus on their top selling items um, and in order to sort of keep their lines running at full bore um, uh, continues to limit uh, variety in the grocery stores. And, and I'm, this is, you know, I'm talking about um, if you, uh, you know, if, if chicken soup is the number one seller, you know, there may be five or six basic soups in the grocery store, but some of the more specialty soups that you're used to getting aren't there. They're not being processed at this time. I think that's going to be with us for a while. Um, and I know that, you know, there's a shortage of truck drivers. Uh, there's a shortage of container ships. And oh, by the way, there's an aluminum shortage. And so, and so even if we could, you know, capture some of this produce that was intended for the restaurant market, and process it, there are no cans to put them in. And so, so we, our challenge as a network has been the fact that a lot of the food that's coming to uh, the food bank network is fresh and perishable. They're just pulling the squash out of the field and putting it in, in boxes and bins and sending it to us. That creates a last mile problem for us for the most vulnerable and hard to reach populations um, because that all of that has to be refrigerated all along the supply chain. And, um, and that makes it harder to get that food into the hands of a very rural, you know, very um, 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 a, a community that maybe has transportation issues um, or who have health issues and they can't get out and, and get to a store. So um, we think these, we know, I mean, you, you have seen the news about the supply chain disruptions are really global in many ways. We are seeing that inside our own state and in our own grocery stores. So Dana, you hit on something really important. I don't think we always think about is the health structure as well, right? I mean, thinking about people who might not have the ability health-wise to get out and get food or the transportation, right? Mina, we had a conversation um, and you spoke to me a little bit around holistic ways to look at the food system. So for, would love for you to kind of chime back in here and kind of explain to us how we might move forward in the future to really look at food systems holistically. So from transportation, from health aspect, from an education um, aspect, from a healthy eating farmer's aspect. Mm. Wow, that's a big question. It's a big one. <laughs> um, I'll start with, um, you know, there, there are many, uh, I don't think that food equity is a humanitarian problem. 
um, if it was a humanitarian problem, we could change our minds and change the problem. Um, food insecurity is really a system problem. Um, and it's about really power. Um, it's about um, our decision to um, make profit for the few um, over the masses, our way of doing business. And I think we have to look at that as we seek solutions. Um, we can hack the system and a lot of social entrepreneurs have been very successful in doing that. Um, in my um, research for this talk, I ran across a young woman named Jasmine Crow who has a company called Gooder.co and she has hacked the system and made it really easy for businesses to provide surplus food to families who are hungry, addressing um, their uh, over surplus of food, addressing food waste in our um, dumps that causes global warming. Um, so those kind of central entrepreneurs have hacked the system. Um, the larger problem, I believe, is how do we dismantle systems that no longer serve us and create more agency for the masses um, to provide food for themselves and not just be the end of the distribution channel. So as we look at that, we talk about food sovereignty. Um, and food sovereignty is not about solving hunger. It's really about realigning economic resources and control as a means of production um, rather than depending on charitable means for people to receive food. So Mina, we have a few questions in the chat that came through, but you just said something I think very much speaks to one of them. So I'm gonna kind of continue on this conversation. So you mentioned, um, you know, systems around or issues around food systems and economic inequity. Can you maybe speak to us or give us a little bit more background on like federal programs related to food like SNAP? I think here in the US, we see sometimes there are programs like that that are in place where we have populations or communities that kind of fall in between, right? They sometimes make a little too much to benefit from the program, but don't make as much as they need to, to, to live comfortably, right? And access food um, that's of a quality standard. Can you maybe speak to how we might support some of those communities? So I have, I'm challenged with looking at food systems singularly, right? I, because they're so intersectional. And as I look at the places where food insecurity exists, I have to also look at housing inequity because those are the places, um, the places that were marginalized by redlining historically, where poverty is rampant are the places where, that are most food insecure. So um, I resonate with this question as the mother, single mother of two kids um, I fell in that gap where I, I'm too rich to be, too poor to be rich and too rich to be poor. Um, and I got help for nothing, <laughs> you know? So oftentimes um, the struggle was very real. Um, for many families who are on assistance, um, the assistance is um, calibrated by the state's budget. So you'll still find families by the 15th of the month going hungry um, and having to subsidize their way from the 15th to the 30th. So that's still not a solution to hunger. 
In addition, um, there's a large amount of education we have to do in communities around um, quality of food. Um, Healthy Black Families in Berkeley was one of the first municipalities to pass Measure D, which taxes sugary sweetened beverages in our municipality and uses those funds to do this kind of community education. Um, we realize that big soda preys on our communities. Um, we know that high fructose corn syrup is the um, cause of disease um, for many people. And so we thought that uh, there was no way to keep them from coming into our community with these products. So we decided to you know, um, turn pain into purpose with this measure and deploy some of those funds to com uh, educate communities around not only what foods are good for their health, but how to shop for them, where to find them, employing chefs to show them how to cook them so that the eggplant they received in the box doesn't rot because they don't know what to do with it. Um, and so developing that level of relationship in communities um, with local nonprofits who understand the community is really, I think, a good way to create um, a stopgap here. And again, we do need to get to food sovereignty, which is really dismantling these systems and making land and the ability to grow food more available for wider spectrums of the population so that we can eradicate food insecurity. So I love this notion of community education. I think that is so unique. Um, so I wanna bring Dana and Deep Mala back into the conversation. I know Dana, you work in Georgia and in, in the entire state and we have you know parts of Georgia like Atlanta that's very metropolitan. And then we have a lot of rural places as well. So I would love for you maybe to talk to us about how you um, see education in those two areas and what the differences are and maybe how you lean on partners. And then Deep Mala would love to bring you back in too to give us a global perspective around um, food education. So maybe let's start with Dana and then we'll go to Deep Mala. So Georgia is blessed with a long growing season and a lot of our farmers in the southern part of the state, you know, they start harvesting crops in January, February, and they harvest all the way through till it gets hot in the summer and then the sweet potatoes and squash come in the fall and they donate um, more than uh, 14 million pounds. That's more than 300 tractor trailer loads of that produce to us. Uh, and it's unmarketable produce. It's, it's too big or too small. It's not perfect. It has an imperfection on it. And so the grocery retailers won't take it. And, uh, but our, our neighbors love it. And so we partner with Georgia Extension and we partner uh, with uh, other organizations and three of the food banks actually have nutritionists on staff who do nutrition education and cooking education. Because like Mina said, she's using an eggplant, but if you've never, if you haven't been shown how to cook butternut squash, you don't even know how to get into that thing, right? It's just got this hard shell on the outside. And so we feel like that we're helping to create consumers for a variety of this produce that they, you know, if you have a very limited dollar a budget, food budget, you're not going to buy squash, even if it's on sale at the grocery store, if you're not absolutely sure that your kids will eat it, right? So if we can uh, expose a lot of our neighbors to this uh, variety of fresh produce, teach, give them information about the nutrition of it and how to prepare it in a healthy way, you know, when, they're, when their food budgets recover, then they're going to buy that because they know their kids love it. And so I think that that, that kind of 
work that we do through our farm to food bank program and that the food banks do with Georgia County Extension and, and their own nutrition directors is a really critical piece of, of, of helping people um, have access to healthier food, but also be able to really fully take advantage of it, like Mina said. Dana, you hit on such a, a funny, important um, point for me. So I'm one of those people who does not know how to open up a butternut squash. I just learned how to open up garlic. So, just, <laughs> so I completely understand, Ryan. There's a host of other um, vegetables that I'm just now getting used to or seeing because I've started to go to Whole Foods more and I have no idea where to start, right? So I love that you kind of touched on that. And I think it's, you know, it's a learning experience, right? As you start to um, really take your health serious, you have to sometimes go on these journeys where you spend a lot of time on YouTube university learning how to open garlic right <laughs> um deep mal i want to pull you back in here though to talk to us a little bit more about um community education from a global perspective absolutely i think some of the examples which jana gave i can totally identify because many many of those things happen in several of the countries where we work and one of the additional things which we start um, in many of the places is acceptance to newer foods. And uh, for example, I was in Somalia a couple of weeks ago and I was talking to our team and some community members. Our care teams were teaching people how to make more nutritious uh, things with sorghum and maize, which is now being grown a little bit. And I was like, what's the traditional cooking? How did your grandmoms and everything? They said, no, traditionally our diet was only meat and milk. I said, what about vegetables? Then they all started laughing and they said they were not even here. So that's the point. When we introduce a new food community acceptance, we have to give them time for that. Now, recently, uh, I think as we speak as well, in the month of September, uh, CARE worked with women farmers, small holding farmers in the Herat province in Afghanistan, distributing little strawberry seedlings and teaching the communities how to take care of them and groom them and other stuff. Then in various other countries, CARE also works with the communities, helping them and training them, providing them tools as well as capacity for better harvesting, for better sowing, better farming techniques. Because sometimes what happens is the, the displacement is so high in the the world. It's 51 million people have been forced to flee in the recent times, which is higher than uh, at least one decade ago. So now in many of the contexts, care teams work with communities to train them, build their capacity or support them in getting produce, which will be ready in a couple of weeks. Sorry, in a couple of months. So in some context, we'll focus on, let's say, okra and tomatoes. Because I remember long back in one of the one of the hardship postings, we were talking and I was talking to a bunch of farmers and I was like, there's land here. Why don't we grow? We, we can help you with seeds and tools. And a really old farmer told me, and I'll never forget that. He said, my child, no farmer in the world will grow as long as he is sure that he or his family will be alive to reap it. So when we work with the communities, we also focus on the duration. Then we often work with mothers to help them prepare recipes which are more nutritious and more, in often many cases, more available with local and seasonal foods. We, we also work with um, families, mother-in-laws, moms, to you know, six months exclusive breastfeeding, then from the seventh month, which foods to introduce. A lot of this work is happening in countries like Bangladesh. In many of the refugee camps, we work with women and women's group to 
teach them some newer recipes which they can not only use for consumption but also set up small restaurants and you know what they call their small businesses so it's a mix of things it's training it's refresher trainings because the training only is not enough sometimes providing them seeds sometimes providing them tools sometimes introduction about a new food or a new product and then often working with them longer term for acceptance now underlying all this is the trust level that needs to be established with the community. Why should somebody living in the community, like if a stranger knocks at my door and tells me, I'm going to tell you how to make dal better. I was like, babe, my grandmom has been doing dal. You can tell me nothing about it. But unless there's a trust and a relationship, and that is one of the care strengths yeah. that we focus a lot on community acceptance and relationships. Ladarian? Love that deep Malin. something I think once again, we don't think about, right? I just can't imagine, um, you know, just taking food from someone, right? Without filling that, that trust factor. So love that you highlighted that. So um, we have a couple more questions before we end our time together, but I just, I love the energy of this panel. I think you all do some amazing work and um, all the insights you have shared have been amazing. But one question that came up for me is what keeps you all inspired, right? I think we've seen food issues be an issue for such a long time, right? And only get heightened during COVID. And um, there are times where we see food systems in the news and then times we don't. So there's a little bit of, you know, popularity for the topic that comes and goes. But want to know what keeps you all inspired? What things are you seeing in the field that's kind of keeping you excited, innovative approaches um, to food access and food systems? So maybe let's start with Mina and then we'll go to Deep Mala and then hear from Dana last. Thank you. What I, what inspires me has as much to do with the past as it does the future. Um, I'm inspired by um, the resilience of my ancestors, um, how in the midst of such trauma and such lack, they were able to focus on goals that were aspirational and move themselves from being chattel slavery to citizens in a country. Um, so that's found the foundational place where I get a lot of my inspiration. Uh, as I look to our present time, I'm really inspired by the innovation of social entrepreneurs and people who are thinking outside of the box um, to solve some of these difficult challenges that we have. Um, the, using technology to empower us to reach each other in different types of ways, um, like this conversation here. Um, and um, as I look to the future, um, I'm inspired by people like Chris Newman of um, Sylvan Aqua Farms up in Virginia. Um, he left his tech job um, to return to his indigenous practices as an African and Native American and um, runs a very productive farm there. Um, and he's fighting for food sovereignty or different ways of even imagining food systems. Um, and that inspires me too because um, you know, I imagine communities where food is readily accessible and um, people have the capacity to grow them. To, to us returning to, you know, some semblance of our rural roots, even in our urban areas and creating different ways that we can address these, you know, challenging um, life-threatening issues. So those are my places of inspiration. Deepmala, what about you? What's keeping you inspired? <laughs> I mean, just hearing Mina, that inspired me. 
um, what keeps me inspired, I'm a humanitarian in my heart, I know no other way. But having said that, it's an incredibly difficult time for the planet, for our world. Um, there are moments where you have to make one, I have to make a conscious effort to feel inspired. Now, being with the communities, for example, we were once traveling in Yemen, far off, everything's dry, we get to see a family. I won't paint a gloomy picture, but imagine a really gloomy one, no food, kids hungry, really skinny, you can see the bones. And that woman came and she offered me a big piece of bread. And I thought this might be all that she has for this day, probably this week. And she's offering this to me, the love which she had in her eyes when she gave that bread to me, that inspires me. And it's not uncommon. It is deeply common. We just have to be conscious and find it. Um, when I interact with the field teams, especially the teams which have like really difficult, tough days, and they say, or if someday when they say, I'm so happy to work at CARE, that really inspires me. When I'm in a refugee camp, a kid thinks of me as an outsider, maybe who knows somebody runs to me and say, hey, are we going home today? I feel very hurt at that moment, but the optimism in his voice that deeply, deeply inspires me. And lastly, because I was in Somalia a few weeks ago, I would remember we were talking to these women who were in that camp for last four or five years and it was so hot and everything. And I was like, how bad it is to be here. And they explained how bad it is to be here. Then I said, what inspires you? Why are you here? Why don't you just, they said, in the education program here, our kids are studying. There's hope. And that hope of those women gives me hope. Ladarian? So beautiful, Deepmala. Very, very beautiful. Dana, what about you? What's keeping you inspired? I am inspired by a, a word that Mina used, and that's resilience. The, the people that we see who are experiencing food insecurity either because they've lost a job or because they, um, you know, have experienced a, uh, the structural racism that has sort of kept them from really being able to have the kind of economic security that they need. Um, they are um, they are all resilient and and have hope. And as I said before, I'm a I'm a relentless optimist. It's easy to do that in a country like ours where there's so much abundance. And I believe and hope that what we've been through with COVID has helped a lot of people who were really comfortable and weren't thinking about people who struggle, see the people who struggle and see how they can help and be a part of the solution. So I think for today, resilience is definitely our word. So thank you, Mina, for throwing that out. Um, so before we go, we have one final question. This is um, one of our fun questions, but we would love for you all to maybe share one thing that you've been doing during the pandemic um, that's creating joy. So if you're reading some new books, watching Netflix, we'd love for you all to share that. So maybe let's start with Dana. We'll go to Mina and get our last word from Deepmala. It's creating joy for me. I don't know how my husband feels about it, but I have learned to play my father's 1946 Gibson acoustic guitar. I inherited it from him. He bought it when he was 10 years old, uh, worked 
for 12 months for $5 a month cleaning the church to buy it. Uh, for $36 in 1946. And uh, I found a luthier to restore it. And I have taught myself to play it. And um, it's like having his voice in the house right now. So I have um, really enjoyed it. And that's what I do to um, help sort of revive myself. I love it. You know, what about you? So because of the immense gentrification that happens in California. I live in the exurbs, which is about 50 miles from where I work every day. And because of the masses of us that live in the exurbs, the commute is horrendous. I would spend, before COVID, almost three hours on the highway trying to get to and from work. So I have been inspired by just being able to spend time in my home. <laughs> I used to sleep here and get up and leave, and I just had no time. So um, I have a balcony outside of my home, outside of my bedroom that I, and I, I, I'm ashamed to say it, I'd lived in my house for 11 years and I'd never been on it. So um, I have put plants out there and little chairs and, you know, simple things, you know, like being able to have a hot bath before I go to bed. Um, it's those little creature comforts that have really inspired and given me a lot of um, uh, respite during this time. Mm -hmm. I love that. I mean, I'm a home decorator as well. So if you ever need tips, um, I'm your girl. <laughs> oh, I'm coming for you. <laughs> Deep Mala, what about you? How are you finding and creating joy now? I would say that um, in a humanitarian role and that too in a global one, there's no start or end time of the day because at some point somebody is awake and something important is happening. So I think I have really found a way or trained myself to work around the sun approach. And that has been like really helpful for me. Um, my new love in the last two years, which has really expanded after COVID, like rescuing street cats. Um, Sometimes, you know, sort of treating them myself with the help of, a, I have local vets are my friends now, uh, sometimes fostering, sometimes, uh, you know, referring them to a shelter, sometimes pestering my friends to adopt, foster. So just the kitty love really inspires me, gives me a break. They're not around, otherwise they would have been on the call with me. Um, so I have discovered that I am good with kittens and I can actually save and rescue. Well, we always welcome pets. I know Dana has a pet as well. So next time you all hop on a Tuesday talk, feel free to, um, to bring your pets here. But we are at the end of our time today. So I will say thank you to our wonderful panelists um, for joining the conversation. Your insights, perspectives were amazing. Um, for everyone on the call, if you're able to turn your cameras on, unmute yourself um, and join me in doing a round of applause for our speakers. You all were amazing. <laughs> Perfect. So we will keep the chat open. Feel free to keep chatting away, um, dropping some perspectives and some other words that we can leave today and um, remember. I'm going to pass it back over to DJ Sofa to close us out um, with a mini dance party. DJ Sofa, over to you.